0: Over these last few months, as we've been looking at selected passages from the book of Isaiah, we've seen how God has been at work. He's been dealing with his people, speaking about future events, and ruling over the affairs of the nations. Chapters 1 to 39, if you remember, were set in the context of northern Israel being overrun by the Assyrian Empire, and the city of Jerusalem in the south was itself Miraculously delivered at that time because King Hezekiah and the people put their trust in God. But chapter 39 ended with the warning that the Babylonian Empire was coming. And chapters 40 to 55 then look forward prophetically to a time when several hundred years later the people would be in exile in Babylon, wondering if their God would do anything to help them. Chapters 40 to 55 answer that question. They remind the Jewish people that, that God is so much greater than the idols and false gods of Babylon. God's judgment is coming on the Babylonian empire, and, and the exiles will be allowed to return home. Jerusalem and the temple will be restored. Chapter 55 that we looked at briefly last week therefore forms a concluding invitation at the end of that section inviting the people to turn to their God for help to seek the Lord and the deliverance that He provides particularly when it comes in the form of God's chosen servant, the suffering servant, the one spoken about in the four servant songs in that section. Scholars are divided then as to whether chapter 56 begins an entirely new section of Isaiah, or whether chapters 56 to 66 still part, uh, are still part of the second section, it doesn't really matter. There does, though, seem to be a shift in emphasis. Post-exile theological questions are now being addressed, because even after the return from exile, the failure of Israel and their sin will continue. They'll continue to fail to be the people of God that they're supposed to be. And yet, God still holds out the promise of true deliverance. God ultimately has a wonderful plan and future for his people and for the nations. That's what chapters 56 to 66 seem to be about. We're going to look, especially this morning at property at chapter 61, in the middle of that section, verses one to three of chapter one, uh, sorry, chapter 61, because th- these verses form the very heart of this section of Isaiah. There's a careful structuring of the text, and the chapters around to make verses one to three of chapter 61, the center and most important statement in this part of the book. So let me read these wonderful words to you and then we'll look at them a bit more carefully. Isaiah chapter 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes a young plant come up, and a garden causes seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Let me take you through those verses a bit more slowly. So verses 1 to 3 in my first heading, the anointed one announces good news. The anointed one announces good news. We saw as we looked at the second section of the book of Isaiah, the focus was on a coming servant as the bringer of God's deliverance. Now the descriptor given to this coming figure is the anointed one. The anointed one from which we get the title Messiah or the Christ. Verse 1, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. God's Holy Spirit is going to rest on this person in a special way. He's going to be anointed, set apart for a special task. The Sovereign Lord has chosen him, appointed him to do something. Isaiah is using poetic language. He's putting the words into the mouth of this coming figure. This future anointed one describes or proclaims his role. What is it that he's been appointed to do? Well, the verse continues, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. The Jews for whom these words were first written were reaching the end of their time in exile in Babylon, or had recently returned from exile, and they were living among the ruins of Jerusalem the city was destroyed. They, they maybe didn't feel like there was a whole lot of good news going around. There wasn't much to celebrate. But God says through his servant Isaiah that this coming anointed one will bring good news, good news to the poor. Probably not just poor in a material sense, but poverty in all sorts of ways. Poverty of spirit, the, the, the broken, the downtrodden, those feeling excluded or walked over. Good news for those with little hope and few rights, just like the captives in Babylon or the returning exiles. The verse continues, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. What a powerful image. Imagine a a fragile, precious, vulnerable heart held out in front of us, our, our sort of emotional center. And someone comes along and and rips it out of our hand and drops it on the ground and stamps on it. It's a broken mess. And that's exactly how we feel at times. Our hearts are broken by the things that happen to us. Like a precious vase smashed on the ground. But God binds up the brokenhearted. He wraps them around with his love. He is the restorer of souls, the healer of emotions. And maybe today you need to hear that as God, by His Spirit, binds up your broken heart. The anointed one will also proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Again, images that the exiles can relate to. They they know what it is to be taken captive. They 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 know what it is to be taken at someone else's pleasure. They probably they probably weren't literally prisoners kept in dungeons, but the images of a prisoner being led out into the light after having been imprisoned in a in a dark underground cell. Verse 2 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Instead of judgment upon Israel and their sin, now is the day of the Lord's favor. His goodness is directed towards them. They are to be recipients of his his blessing and his favor. But it is also the day of vengeance of our God. In other words, the day when the wrongs done to God's people will be overturned, when the suffering of the Lord's people will be avenged. Vengeance doesn't sound all that nice. But for those who really know what it is to suffer, it's good news. God, the just judge of all the world, will do what is right. He will right the wrongs in the end. The anointed one, we are told, will also comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. We were looking at Psalm 137 in my home group the other night and uh, uh, thinking about the importance of of space for lament. Lament. The writer of Psalm one thirty seven is lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of of God's people in Babylon. And even among those returning from exile, there were many who were filled with grief over over what remained of the city and the temple. Jerusalem, the holy city, Zion, was in ruins; its walls and its temple destroyed. But yet Isaiah says that there will be comfort for those who mourn and good provision for those who find themselves grieving among the ruins of Zion. The anointed one is going to provide for them, verse 3. He's going to provide a crown of beauty on their head. Mourners in Israel would have taken off their head covering and put ashes on their head as a sign of grief. The loss of a loved one. Brokenness over sin among the people. The Jews, their their leaders, they would have torn their robes and put ashes on their head as a sign of of mourning, of of sadness, devastation. But the coming anointed one changes it all around. He takes a spirit of despair and replaces it with the oil of joy, like the oil of anointing poured out on the head of the priest. Instead of those torn robes is a new garment, verse 3, a new robe of praise instead of ashes as a head covering, is a beautiful crown. Joy. Beauty. Praise. That's what the anointed one ultimately brings about. Despair and mourning turn to joy and gladness. Now, while these verses might be in the language that will be understandable by the people of Israel in exile, or those recently returning from exile, it's clear that these words do not find their fulfillment in the events that followed the coming back of the people to Jerusalem. As, As the chapters around these verses make clear, the problem of Israel's sin has not actually been dealt with. The failure of God's people to live in the way they should has not been changed. And while there may be some measure of freedom from physical poverty, the problem of spiritual poverty still remained. And while there were some good things that happened, like the walls being rebuilt and and the, the worship in the temple restarting, still it could not really be said, end of verse three, that the people in Jerusalem ever came to be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor, end of verse three. God's people Israel were never mighty, towering trees of righteousness, displaying the Lord's splendor for all the nations to see. And so these words, these promises of blessing in Isaiah 61 can only really be fulfilled in another way. They can only be fulfilled ultimately in another sense at another time through the coming of the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ he who truly deals with the problem of sin clothes God's people in righteousness and helps us to live for God's glory. And hence, we find ourselves turning to Luke chapter 4, the passage that Dave read for us, and the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. Let me read these verses to you from Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. This is after Jesus' baptism and his testing in the wilderness. Verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus claiming the words of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 as the declaration of his own ministry. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am the spirit-filled, anointed one described by the prophet Isaiah. I'm the one who, who proclaims good news to the poor freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom for the oppressed. My coming inaugurates a new world, a new way of relating to God and and one another. I announce to you the arrival of the kingdom of God. I am the coming servant, the foretold king, the anointed one, spoken of by the prophet Isaiah the one who will truly deal with the problem of sin and enable God's people to live as they should. And we see that promise beginning to be worked out in Jesus' ministry. He teaches, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He announces good news to those who are in despair. Again, not just... To those in material poverty, but to those who are poor in the broadest sense, poor in spirit, poor in, in terms of brokenness and exclusion, a wide range of social, economic, religious factors leading them to have no sense of worth or hope. And we see Jesus reaching out to such people, to the lost, to the marginalized, the sinful, and he says, Come to me. He heals the blind. Literally, he he touches the eyes of the blind man and suddenly he can see. It feels to me, reading through the Gospels, that Jesus healed quite a lot of blind people. Maybe that's because the Gospel writers particularly record those miracles because of the obvious link with spiritual blindness. Jesus demonstrates his power to heal physical blindness, but what we need most is for him to heal our spiritual blindness. And I can't think of an occasion when Jesus proclaimed freedom for a prisoner, literally, verse 18, but there were certainly lots of times when he freed people from from demon possession or from crippling illness or, or even from the bonds of death. And so Jesus' coming makes a colossal difference to our lives. From what I've read of liberation theology, which is a particular way of interpreting these verses in Isaiah, quoted here in Luke. From what I've read about liberation theology, there's quite a big emphasis on Jesus being the one who brings about liberation for oppressed peoples. An encouragement to look to Jesus today to bring about, in this world, freedom from oppression, justice for the poor, and overthrowing of of corrupt and, and dominant powers and empires. My problem, though, is that I don't think these words in Isaiah 61 are ultimately describing an improvement in this current world. While the coming of Jesus to poor and deprived communities today does sometimes bring about economic and social transformation, I don't think it's a lasting and totally radical transformation that the prophet Isaiah is speaking of. Just as with people returning from exile to Jerusalem who experienced some physical blessing... I think that any earthly fulfillment of these words in a physical sense in our day will also be short-lived. There's too much greed and corruption for it to last. The bigger problem of sin still needs to be addressed. And what we ultimately need as people in this world is rescued from our spiritual poverty, freedom from our bondage to sin and the devil through Christ and the opening of our blind eyes to the truth of the gospel. I think that spiritual salvation, freedom from spiritual bondage, is what Isaiah is ultimately pointing us towards. When we, when when you and I return to Christ for salvation, he sets us free from, from bondage to sin. He opens our eyes to see the truth of his love. He binds up our broken hearts. He He fills us with deep and lasting joy and praise. And he places a spiritual crown of beauty on our heads. As we'll see next week in chapter 65, it will ultimately, though only be, in in the renewed heavens and earth that the kingdom of God is fully realized. And there is finally an end to all physical suffering. And true freedom from all the things that oppress us. And, and all the brokenness and, and all the things that cause us to weep. Including our own sin. One day we will be truly free. It will be in our eternal dwelling with God that we fully experience God's provision and favor. These things in Isaiah 61 joy, praise, righteousness, and beauty. Let me return just briefly, though, to the remaining verses in this chapter and my second heading, God's people as a light to the nations. God's people as a light to the nations, verses 4 to 11 as I hinted at at the beginning, verses 1 to 3 form the centerpiece of chapters 56 to 66. And the themes converge on either side to this point, like like a triangle, starting at either side with describing the continued sinfulness of God's people and moving through the recognition that only God can transform his people to the message that God's people, once they're transformed, will live such attractive lives that people from All nations will come to worship the Lord and experience the reign of the Anointed One. So as we move now into 4 to 11 of chapter 61, and in fact through to the end of chapter 62, Isaiah is talking about God's blessing, resting on his people such that they become an attractive witness to the world. God's transformed people function as a light to the nation's. Let me just take you quickly through these verses. Verse 4, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Again, using the language of rebuilding cities after the destruction of war, God promises blessing for his people. Verse 5, strangers will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards either in the sense of people from other nations wanting to help in the community of God's people or in the sense of God's people no longer being at the bottom of the pile, no longer having to do the lowest jobs. Rather, verse 6, they will be called priests of the Lord. You'll be named ministers of our God. That was the original intention for God's people. They would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation declaring the praises of God, a promise that gets specifically transferred to the church. 1 Peter chapter 2. You will feed on the wealth of nations, verse 6, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. God's blessing being described using material language, abundant provision, resulting in everlasting joy. Verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice, I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. In other words, God doesn't go back on his promises. He doesn't shortchange his people. He doesn't wrong them. Perhaps in contrast to the behavior of his sinful people. Verse 9, their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the people. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. And that's, that's very much the main idea here. God blesses his people so that they can be a witness to his redeeming love. People look at God's people and they see that God has done great things for them. And they are attracted by that. And they too want to become part of the community. They want to become one of God's people. And yet again, that's an idea that is never fully fulfilled for the Jewish people. They never entirely witness to God's love in a way that is attractive to the nations. But it is something that at least partly now is being fulfilled uh, through the new people of God as, as, as we, the church, as we today as Christians witness to, to God's redeeming love in Christ. And people from all nations are drawn into the community of faith. The light of Christ shining through us to the nation. And one day, we will be the fully transformed community that we ought to be. Verses 10 and 11, at the conclusion of this chapter, could be understood as being further words from the Anointed One of verses 1 to 3. But I wonder if it might be easier to understand them as being the song of God's people, as a sort of response, as recipients of God's grace, clothed in His righteousness, we respond in praise to our God. Verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the soil makes the young plant come up and a garden causes seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. God the sovereign Lord is working out his purposes. He is bringing about his plan of salvation. Through, through his chosen servant, Jesus, he has, he has brought about our forgiveness and redemption. He's, he's, he's taken Christ's righteousness and placed it on us, and you and me, making us as a church into a beautiful bride his Son. Not because we are knit or deserved it or achieved it by our own efforts, but simply because of his mercy and grace. Even if these final verses are supposed to be understood as the words of the Messiah, they're still a song of praise to God for all that he has done. And because of that, it is the light of Christ that shines through us as people as a beacon to the nations and to the glory and praise of Almighty God. Isaiah 61 is good news. Good news for God's people, Israel, returning from exile. But greater, fuller, better news for God's people today, for God's church, for his children in Christ Good news proclaimed to the poor and downtrodden. Good news for the broken hearted. Good news for the captives and the prisoners. For those who mourn or would otherwise be in despair. The day of the Lord's favour has begun. Christ has covered us in his righteousness. And God's glory and splendour is being displayed through his church. One day... One day we are going to enjoy our full and final redemption as as Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, leads his people into their eternal home. Then, then on that day, all all mourning will truly give way to joy. All despair will give way to praise. And we as Christ's bride will be crowned with beauty instead of ashes. All these images from Isaiah chapter 61. We will... Experience in full God's provision and blessing and everlasting joy will be our cry. Until that day, maybe you could join me in praying that God would help us individually and as a church to witness to his love in an attractive way that like Jesus the Messiah that we too would be anointed with the Spirit to proclaim the good news of God's salvation. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for these words from the prophet Isaiah. Thank you for the beautiful language and images that these verses contain. We maybe struggle to get our heads around them a bit and to completely understand all, all these things and what they refer to, but we thank you that they speak of a coming anointed one who will proclaim good news to all those who are in need of help. And thank you that in Christ Jesus you have provided us with your chosen and anointed one and that through him you have worked our salvation And guaranteed our life with you in the kingdom that is yet to come in all its fullness. Until that day, help us, help us to be like Jesus. And to witness to your redeeming love. And to proclaim to the nations the good news of your salvation and redemption. To the praise of your glorious name. Amen.